I'm Ellen L. Insurance, and you're listening to the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law, and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 41 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, we're going to talk about double jeopardy. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Our next case of People v. Thompson, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1985, addresses why we allow for retrials in criminal cases when there is a hung jury. For those unfamiliar, a hung jury occurs when a jury fails to unanimously find a defendant guilty or innocent. The idea behind a unanimous jury verdict is that, number one, it makes it much harder to convict a defendant. And remember, the burden of proof is on the government to convince a jury of your peers that you are guilty of the crime being leveled against you. But number two, the value of a unanimous jury is it gives a sense of finality that every juror on the jury panel believes in your innocence or in your guilt. So what's going on in our case? Defendant Thompson was convicted of felony murder for killing a bartender during an armed robbery. Defendant Thomas was initially convicted in a jury trial in 1975. That conviction was reversed because of improper jury instructions, which aren't relevant to this particular uh, podcast or the discussion. I just need you to know he was convicted. Then that conviction was overturned and a new trial had to be held. And indeed, Defendant Thompson then was retried in 1981. That trial resulted in a jury deadlock, so a mistrial was declared, and it was at Thompson's second retrial in 1982 that the jury found him guilty of the murder charge, and it actually stuck. There were no there were no <clears throat> arguments to be made about jury instructions or whatnot. Okay, so thinking about that, a conviction, it was overturned, it was retried, there was a hung jury, it was retried again, uh, and finally got the conviction. It was the defendant's claim here that Article 1, Section 15 of the Michigan Constitution prohibits a retrial after a mistrial is declared due to the jury's inability to decide guilt or innocence. And effectively, the defendant's position is this. 
The prosecutor gets one shot at convincing a jury the defendant is guilty of the alleged crime. And if the jury can't come up with a unanimous decision that the defendant is guilty, why then everything must be thrown out and the defendant should be allowed to go about his life as if he had been found not guilty of the crime. (laughs) Hogwash, our Michigan Supreme Court concluded. We're referring back to the Anderson case that we just discussed. The Michigan Supreme Court reiterated, when a trial does not end in a judgment of acquittal or conviction, the constitutional protections of double jeopardy are not absolute. Although, as pointed out in Anderson, absolutely a defendant has a right to avoid the harassment of repeated trials, but remember, alternatively, we've talked about the public has a right in having a complete opportunity to try those accused of breaking the law. If the trial ends without the defendant's conviction or innocence being determined, then manifest necessity compels a retrial against a defendant. To support the Michigan Supreme Court's decision that a hung jury is a scenario where double jeopardy does not yet apply is by looking to the Michigan Constitutional Convention in 1962, which led to this constitutional provision. They stated the necessary starting point for the determination of the defendant's argument is to ascertain the intent of the framers and the people who adopted this Article 1, Section 15 provision. They point out that comments made by the members of the Committee on, and this is kind of a mouthful here, the Committee on Declaration of Rights, Suffrage, and Elections, that those members on that committee, when putting together this particular provision in our proposed Constitution, it indicated that this language was written to mirror the language of the federal double jeopardy clause, and it had long been the practice of Michigan courts to construe Michigan's double jeopardy law like the federal standard, which, to be clear, allows for a retrial after a hung jury. Additionally, comments made about this provision at the 1962 Constitutional Convention made clear the framers had no intent to bar retrials after a mistrial was caused by a jury deadlock or this idea of manifest necessity. So again, the idea here was when this provision was being included in the 1962 Michigan Constitution, and it had been there all along, but when it was continued again to be kept in our 1963 Constitution, the idea here, as was said on the record, was to make it align with what the federal understanding of double jeopardy means, And the feds have said, (laughs) nice rhyme there, right? Uh, The feds have said double jeopardy does not attach in the event that there is a mistrial due to a hung jury. Now, our court's opinion here then goes on to cite this standard having been implemented by the Michigan courts in 1884, 1902, two cases in 1976, and our recent Anderson case in 1980. I love the following paragraph of this Michigan Supreme Court decision, so please indulge me this quote. The history surrounding the framing of Article 1, Section 15 affords no indication that either the framers of the Michigan Constitution nor the people of Michigan intended to prohibit retrial where the original jury could not agree on a verdict. This has never been the rule in Michigan. Those who draft a constitution are presumed to be aware of existing law and judicial construction and to act in light of that knowledge. Oh, I do love a good originalist legal argument. Our next case regarding double jeopardy comes from People v. Dawson, another Michigan Supreme Court case from 1988. 
Now, I got a lot of things to say about this case. The first thing I'm going to say is it was a unanimous 7-0 decision by our Supremes. I point that out merely from the standpoint that you so rarely get a 7-0 decision whereby every single Michigan Supreme Court justice agrees on a matter. Next, I want to point out that the opinion was six pages, two columns per page, which means it was a fairly lengthy write-up. And of those six pages, two columns per page, four of the pages were just the fact pattern. And honestly, after reading the case, I couldn't believe how much of the opinion was just regurgitating the fact pattern. And I got to say, the fact pattern probably could have been one page long. The next thing I want you to know about this double jeopardy case is that prosecutorial misconduct can cause a mistrial, which means double jeopardy attaches and the case is dismissed with prejudice, meaning the prosecutor can't retry the defendant. And that's what happened here. The prosecutor behaved badly. It caused the defense attorney to motion for a mistrial. The judge granted said mistrial. And our Michigan Supreme Court determined that double jeopardy applied, thus resulting in an acquittal for Mr. Dawson. Lastly, before we finally get into the thick of this case, I should point out to you that you may be familiar with this notion of a mistrial based on bad prosecutorial behavior with the most recent case of Kyle Rittenhouse, and we talked about this a little earlier. Now we're circling back to it. Because the defense attorney for Kyle Rittenhouse made a motion very similar to this case at hand after the Kenosha, Wisconsin prosecutor inappropriately behaved during the course of the criminal trial. The only difference, though, is that between this case, our case that we're about to talk about, and the Kyle Rittenhouse case, was that the Rittenhouse judge waited on a jury result before making a determination whether to grant the defendant's motion for mistrial. All right, listen, this will all make a lot more sense once I actually explain what happened here in People versus Robert Charles Dawson. I will attempt to simplify the fact pattern to be as straightforward for you, the listener, as possible. But I'm going to tell you this fact pattern from the alleged rape victim's point of view. Then I'm going to tell you the story from the defendant's point of view. Because, as is the situation with many of these types of cases, this comes down to a he said, she said, or, well, um, d defendant versus alleged victim scenario. So here's the fact pattern. Mark Nelson, a 22-year-old male living with his girlfriend in Kalamazoo in 1981, was drinking beer outside his apartment when defendant Dawson comes over with a friend of his, Todd Sweeney. It's hard to tell whether Nelson and defendant Dawson knew each other prior to the visit at the apartment, but the impression I got was that they did not know each other. The three fellows struck up a conversation and bonded over beer. Apparently, they hung out for about 15 minutes, but after running out of beer, decided to go to a friend of Defendant Dawson to get more beer. When they arrive at the house, Defendant Dawson goes down to the basement for several minutes, comes upstairs and invites Nelson to the basement, but Nelson declines and begins to leave the premises. Now, according to Mr. Nelson, he had only taken a few steps away from the home when Defendant Dawson rushes up behind him, grabs victim Nelson by the back of the shirt collar, and places a knife into his back where Defendant Nelson tells, or excuse me, Defendant Dawson tells Mr. Nelson to shut up and keep walking. The two proceed to walk to a park with a creek next to it 
whereupon Mr. Nelson jumps into said creek in an attempt to free himself from defendant Dawson. Dawson allegedly gets into the water, gets hold of Mr. Nelson, threatens to kill Nelson, and proceeds to choke and stab victim Nelson. Nelson said that he was cut on his thumb, his back, and his neck. Allegedly, while also in the water, defendant Dawson was trying to remove Mr. Nelson's pants. Fortunately for Mr. Nelson, he was able to escape defendant's attempted rape and knife attacks by running to a street on the other side of the park where he flagged down a passerby who could save him from the situation. Now, let's present defendant Dawson's side of the story because he did testify on his own behalf. This was his recollection of what happened that day. He acknowledged he did indeed have beers with Mark Nelson and Todd Sweeney at Nelson's apartment, but he testified they did run out of beer, so he went across the street from Nelson's apartment complex to a liquor store and bought more beers for the boys to continue drinking. He went on to testify that Mark Nelson propositioned defendant Dawson, offering Dawson drinks, marijuana, and money if Nelson could perform oral sex on defendant Dawson. Unfortunately for the two, Nelson's live-in girlfriend came home from work just before anything sexual could happen. So, Nelson concocted a scheme whereby they would leave to go get it on, they would tell the girlfriend they were going to go buy more beer, thus giving them cover for them to have some alone time. And in reality, they were going to go back to Dawson's house to do the deed, but upon arrival there, they found that Dawson's roommate and the roommate's girlfriend were at the house, thus eliminating Dawson's house for the rendezvous. Defendant Dawson agrees that they indeed wound up at the park between his house and Nelson's apartment. He agrees to that. This is where they thought the deed could finally be done. He testified in his own defense that Mark Nelson unzipped Defendant Dawson's own pants, but Dawson was unable to get aroused due to the public nature of everything. It was at that point that Nelson took off running home from the park. To be clear, defendant Dawson testified never using a knife on Nelson, nor did he attempt anything sexual with Mr. Nelson that Nelson didn't first initiate between the two. And here's where things started falling apart for the prosecution during the trial. The defense attorney, and this doesn't usually happen, it's the defense attorney who calls one of Kalamazoo's police detectives as a witness. The detective testified there were no injuries to Nelson's back or neck. The police detective went on to testify that if there would have been any of these types of injuries that Mr. Nelson had alleged occurred to his body, that the detective would have photographed those injuries, hence the reason why there were no photos of Mr. Nelson taken on the night of the attempted rape. Sensing that things were not going well for the prosecution, the prosecutor made a motion to recess for the weekend and to resume testimony the next Monday. The judge denied the prosecutor's motion and ordered that the trial was to continue past 5 p.m. Adding insult to injury, an important witness for the prosecution refuted any inappropriate actions by defendant Dawson when this particular victim was a minor in a juvenile living facility that Dawson was working at as a counselor. Now, allegedly, prior to trial, the witness had told the prosecutor that defendant uh, Dawson would behave inappropriately with the male juveniles at this living facility. But on the stand, when the witness refuted the characterization of the prosecutor's intentions, the prosecutor screamed at the witness, can you tell us how many times Mr. Dawson offered you a job? At which point the defense attorney objected and moved for a mistrial. 
The prosecutor, when asked if he had a response, replied, nope, and the court subsequently granted the mistrial. Our Michigan Supremes begin their analysis of this case by referring back to the United States Supreme Court and where they stand on the whole double jeopardy issue. Remember, our Michigan double jeopardy constitutional protection mirrors the decision made by SCOTUS. Double jeopardy does not bar a retrial where the prosecutor or judge make an innocent error or where the thing which prompted the mistrial was outside the control of a prosecutor or a judge. Again, something like that is going to be considered manifestly necessary for the administration of justice. Likewise, where a motion for mistrial is filed by the defendant or with consent by the defendant, especially where this innocent error occurs, the United States Supreme Court has deemed that that is a waiver by the defendant in trying to invoke a double jeopardy protection later on down the line. So if they if they agree with it, they can't turn around then and say, oh, oh, yep, now double jeopardy has applied because they agreed to it. However, where a defendant motions for a mistrial because of intentional prosecutorial misconduct, the United States Supreme Court has long held double jeopardy does attach to the defendant's criminal trial and retrial is prohibited. In particular, the U.S. Supremes have held the Double Jeopardy Clause will bar a retrial where prosecutorial conduct was intended to provoke the defendant into moving for a mistrial. In our case here, during oral arguments before the Michigan Supreme Court, the prosecutor admits that his conduct was improper. He admitted it. He said, yes, Michigan Supreme Court justices, I concede that my behavior that day was improper. And because the prosecutor conceded this point to the Michigan Supreme Court justices, they sided with the defendant. Here's their reasoning. Retrials are an exception to the double jeopardy prohibition. When a mistrial occurs from innocent or maybe even negligent prosecutorial error, there is a public interest in allowing for a retrial. So innocent or negligent behavior, well, that's that's one thing. They think that innocent and negligent error caused by a prosecutor outweighs or is greater than the defendant's double jeopardy claim. On the other hand, the balance tilts in the favor of the defendant when the judge finds, on the basis of an objective facts and circumstances in the case, that the prosecutor intended to goad the defendant into moving for a mistrial. And here's another instance where a judge's decision plays a major role in the outcome of a case. Stop thinking that voting for trial judges is not important. Our Michigan Supreme Court holds that a judge can determine whether the prosecutor intended to goad the defendant into moving for a mistrial. And a judge's decision to prohibit a retrial against the defendant is going to be given great deference by an appellate court. In legal speak, the term, quote-unquote, clearly erroneous is what's going to be used to determine if the judge's decision was or should be overruled. Only if an appellate court determines that the trial judge's decision was clearly erroneous will the judge's ruling be overruled. But here in our case, the Michigan Supremes held the prosecutor in this case admitted to them, the Michigan Supreme Justices, that the prosecutor had intended to cause a mistrial. So let's look at this from a 10,000-foot overview. The prosecutor's case was going badly. The police had not recovered any evidence from the scene of the crime. The only evidence implicating defendant Dawson was simply the testimony of Mr. Nelson, but he had contradicted himself on quite a few occasions. 
aspects like the time of the alleged assault, where and when his pants were pulled down, the purchasing of beer versus the attempt to find a quiet place for a tryst, and the failure to actually have any injuries anywhere on his body, particularly in places like his back and his neck, which would have corroborated his story. And remember, when the prosecutor motioned to recess for the weekend, but was told to continue in presenting his case on that day, well, the Michigan Supreme Court viewed that as a failed delay tactic to be able to buy time and work on the prosecutor's case over the weekend. But when the trial judge denied the prosecutor's recess request, well, the prosecutor asks a very inappropriate question to the witness about irrelevant and unsubstantiated sexual favors offered by the defendant in front of the jury, thus resulting in this mistrial matter that we have today before us. When asked if the prosecutor wanted to object to the defendant's motion, and he merely answered with, nope, that was indicative of goading the defendant to request this mistrial motion. For all those reasons, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled in favor of the defendant that double jeopardy did attach in this criminal case and found that the defendant could not be retried for that alleged crime. Now, before I close out on this case, let me circle back to the Kyle Rittenhouse case. As you'll recall, there were two motions for mistrial made by the Kyle Rittenhouse attorneys during trial. The first motion for mistrial was made after the prosecutor poked fun at Mr. Rittenhouse invoking his right to remain silent during the investigation of his case, but now then at trial wanting to take the stand in his own defense. The judge, appropriately so, admonished the prosecutor for calling into question Rittenhouse invoking his right to remain silent. That is a constitutional right that he has, and so is taking the stand to defend yourself. That is also a constitutional right. Never should a prosecutor pit one constitutional right of a defendant against a different constitutional right of defendant. The second motion for mistrial was when the prosecutor asked questions regarding an event the judge had not yet determined whether it could be introduced against defendant Rittenhouse. When the defense attorney made his motions for, for mistrial, the attorney argued to the judge that the prosecutor knew the case against the defendant was going poorly and was attempting to goad the defense attorney into motioning for a mistrial. But the judge in this case never rules on the defense's motion for mistrial. Instead, the judge let the case go to the jury to determine guilt or innocence. The judge reasoned, if the jury comes back with a not guilty verdict against Mr. Rittenhouse, the motions for mistrial become a moot issue and no decision ends up being necessary from the judge. On the other hand, the judge had then explained that if the jury does come back with a guilty verdict, then the judge would be forced to make a ruling on the two mistrial motions. As you're no doubt aware, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict on all counts, thus absolving the judge from any sticky wicket mistrial rulings. But do you see how similar our case in Michigan against defendant Dawson and the improper conduct of the prosecutor mirrors the behavior, the bad behavior, of the Rittenhouse prosecutor's conduct? A prosecutor cannot behave badly, get a mistrial motion from the defendant, and then allege that double jeopardy doesn't apply. Yes, a defendant can motion for a mistrial, but that doesn't mean double jeopardy will attach. Instead, we must look at the reason for the defendant's motion for a mistrial and see what blame, if any, 
lays at the feet of the prosecutor. After all, the prosecutor is an agent of the government. The government has a tremendous amount of power and resources to bring criminal charges against a defendant. As such, the government, vis-a-vis -vis the prosecutor, must behave appropriately and ethically at all times before and during a criminal trial. The next case from 1998, a Michigan Court of Appeals case titled Consumer and Industry Services versus Greenberg. Now, point of clarification, the Department of Consumer and Industry Services is a state bureaucratic department which now goes by the name Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs. This department, among other things, licenses your professional and trade folk. So think your doctors, nurses, architects, plumbers, electricians, and eye doctors. This department, more than any other, seems to get more frequent name changes than, you know, from one governor to the next, but that's irrelevant. I just, you know, as of 2021, when I'm posting this, it's no longer called the Department of Consumer Industry Services, but I wanted you, or I wanted to ensure that you got that this is a state department taking an action against optometrist William Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg was charged criminally by a county prosecutor and ultimately convicted of two counts of criminal assault and battery involving his female employees. When the Board of Optometry Disciplinary Subcommittee, which is a licensing board made up of both the general public and fellow optometrists, when they learned of Dr. Greenberg's criminal convictions, they took licensing action against him. He ultimately had his license temporarily suspended, he was placed on probation, and the subcommittee fined him $1,000 and required the doctor to perform community service. But Dr. Greenberg appealed his punishment by the disciplinary board, claiming the suspension of his optometry license for 30 days and the fine itself. These things were a violation of our Article 1, Section 15 prohibition against double jeopardy. Essentially, what the doctor was arguing was that to have negative actions occur against him by the disciplinary board because of the criminal assault and battery convictions was a second punishment, in addition to the first punishment, which was the criminal conviction. He believed having a temporary suspension of his license to practice, along with a $1,000 fine being administered by this board against him, that that was an additional level of punishment for above and beyond his criminal case. And remember, the value of double jeopardy protection is not to be punished more than one time for a crime. Yeah, big negatory good buddy was essentially the Michigan Court of Appeals retort to him. They reasoned that whether a particular punishment is criminal or civil in nature requires a court to determine if the Michigan legislature established the penalty to be a criminal penalty or a civil penalty. For that, look to what the punishment is that the legislature allows to happen to the person. Because as we've noted in previous podcasts, just because the Michigan legislature says something is a civil punishment doesn't automatically make it so. A rose by any other name is still a rose. And creating a criminal punishment but calling it civil, well, that doesn't make it true. A criminal punishment is a criminal punishment. But here in our case, all the disciplinary board was doing was taking licensing action against the doctor's license. 
The Court of Appeals went on to say whether a given civil sanction constitutes punishment in the traditional sense requires a particularized assessment of the penalty imposed and the purpose that the penalty may fairly be said to serve, or maybe said another way, what was it looking to achieve by, by putting this penalty into place? Well, the Board of Optometry's Disciplinary Subcommittee, number one, merely suspended the doctor's use of his license for 30 days. 3-0, 30 days, not 90 days, not 365 days, and they certainly didn't permanently revoke his license. But number two, this temporary suspension served the express legislative goal of protecting the public welfare, which is a non-punitive purpose. Think about it this way. A temporary suspension is done to benefit the public welfare, not to penalize the, the doctor's license or the doctor himself. Oh, and likewise with that $1,000 fine, just to be clear, that was the equivalent to about $1,700 in 2021 money. Well, this was well within a reasonable amount of money to offset the cost of the department staff working on the complaint through this administrative process. The Court of Appeals found Dr. Greenberg failed to make even a basic showing of any punishment. The court found the doctor failed to demonstrate the imposed fine is overwhelmingly disproportionate to the government's staff expenses. And for those reasons, the Michigan Court of Appeals upheld Dr. Greenberg's temporarily suspended license and the $1,000 fine as not having violated Article 1, Section 15's double jeopardy protection. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to give me some feedback, please do so. I am at Tony Snyder on Twitter. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.